Let's pray. Father, exalt Jesus this morning. Give your people what they want. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we call ourselves Christians. The word Christian originated long, long ago with the early disciples and apostles. It was actually created as an insult. Um, Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and in claiming to be the Christ, his followers were called Christians. So like rabbis in the first century would have, they're the teacher, and then they'd have students under them, and those students would literally like live their lives with these rabbis and learn from them. And whatever the rabbi's name was, the people were called that rabbi's name. And so Christ, Jesus, is the Christ, and so they called followers of Jesus Christians. And the word Christian means like Christ. Except they didn't mean it like, oh, there goes those people who are like Jesus. They were making fun of Jesus and his followers. Like, oh, there go the Christians. There, go, there goes the, the Christ, this guy that they think is the Savior, even though he's not. And so we're going to call the followers of him Christians. So it was an insult. They were mocked for being like Christ. And the funny thing about that as though it was meant as an insult, it was exactly what Jesus' followers aimed for, which was to be like Christ. So much so that people recognized it and recognized the fruit and the evidence that they follow Jesus. And that is a truth that has not changed in 2,000 years. We are Christians, which means we're supposed to be like Christ. And since we are not perfectly like Christ yet... Our entire life on this earth is intended to shape us into Christ-likeness. And that is what makes us Christians. So the Christian life should look like Christ. And in Colossians 3, 13 through 17, Paul tells us what that life looks like. In verse 13, Paul writes, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now this concept of forgiveness is so essential to our faith, so essential that in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And what Jesus is expressing here is not, it's not that if you don't forgive, then you lose your salvation. He is telling us that those who have been forgiven will forgive others because what God has forgiven for us is a far greater offense than how others have offended us. And that is why in Matthew 18, Jesus shares the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a massive debt by the king. And then turned around after being forgiven and forced his servant to, to pay an even smaller debt. And when the king found out that his servant had made the other servant pay a smaller debt when he had been forgiven a bigger debt, 
He sent the man to jail until he paid all his debts. Meaning, and the whole expression of that, sending him to jail until he pays his debt, is an expression of eternal separation from God. The point is he sent that man to justice and the justice that is served to those who do not forgive is eternal until all the debt is paid, which will take an eternity to pay off and will never be paid off unless you're in Christ. Because that is how profoundly great our sin offends God. So forgiveness is not an option or an encouragement, it's a command. We're commanded to forgive each other. And the reason it is a command is because it is an expression of the gospel, which God desires that we convey to each other and to the world as we express the character of God in Christ by forgiving others for any offense, regardless of the degree of the offense. And that's why in Matthew 18, right before Jesus shares that parable, Peter asks him, how many times should we forgive, Lord? Seven times? All the way up to seven times? Jesus is like, actually, 77 times. And you're going right now, oh, isn't it 70 times seven? Look at your Bibles. It's not 77 times, okay? The point is, whether it's 70 times seven, or it's 77, or it's 7,770, or 7,700,000, whatever, Jesus' point is endlessly forgive. And then Paul goes on in verses 14 through 15. He says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, love is like obviously a huge part of our Christian faith. Like, no, I don't know anybody who even goes to church who doesn't believe that love is massively important to the Christian life or just, I mean, even to those who aren't even saved but are just religious, they know that love is supposed to, like, rule and reign in their lives. It is love that compels God's grace toward us, and it is love that ensures Jesus finishes his life in sacrifice. And according to Romans 5.5, 5, it is love that God pours into our hearts by his spirit. So we are loved by God. We love each other. And we even love our enemies. According to Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Meaning if we are to love even our enemies, then there is not one thing in this world, not one act done against you, or even one offense that, that we should not respond to in love. And when love is active in us, peace rules in our hearts. Because peace is not dependent on your circumstance, it is dependent on your attitude. So is love. Love creates the attitude that disregards the circumstance and still finds peace. So when we are offended or hurt or even abused, to love in response to that requires the character of Christ and the mind of Christ to be active in you, which also means that peace will also reign in your heart and mind, which enables you to endure the worst situations with confidence that because you have Christ, you have enough. That's where your peace comes from. 
regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless of how you're treated, regardless of how you're abused, regardless of how you're not loved, regardless of how you're offended, regardless of how sensitive you are, regardless of fill in the blank and put anything in the universe there, peace still reigns in your heart. Christ still reigns in your heart. Love still reigns in your heart. So you can respond to those people, to that offense, to those circumstances with love and in peace with Christ. And if you have love and peace, and I have love and peace, and together we have love and peace in Christ, then that reveals that we're both operating in the mind of Christ. And when that happens, we have something that's called unity. Or as Paul says in verse 15, binds everything together in perfect harmony. If only one of us has love and or peace, then there can be no unity or harmony, and, and it's, or at least not perfect harmony, which Paul says we should have. Meaning we must be, as Philippians 2.2 says, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That does not mean that I have to do what you say. and It doesn't mean that you have to do what I say. It means that we both want to do what God says, which means we both have to be in the word, which is exactly what Paul says in the next verse. But before he says that, he finishes this verse by saying, and be thankful. How thankful do we have to be? How often do we have to be thankful? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Notice that all these characteristics of Christ that we are to display are all dependent on nothing other than your attitude. There is no circumstance that excuses us from forgiving, loving, being at peace, having unity, or being thankful. We are to put on, as Paul says in verse 12, before he gets to all these lists of things that we should do and be like, put these things on. We are to put on all of these traits regardless of what we're facing or what situation we're in or how we are being treated. Because if these characteristics were dependent on circumstance, then God would have never loved us or sent Jesus to die for us. And our purpose as believers is to unveil the nature of character, nature and character of Christ in us. So circumstances have no bearing on being thankful. Meaning we are to even be thankful for the worst situations that we experience. Because if we're in Christ, we know that everything we face, every experience, no matter how easy, how difficult, or anything in between, we know that those experiences are meant for our sanctification into Christ-likeness. So it depends not on your situation or your circumstance. It depends solely on you being in Christ and expressing these characteristics regardless of what you're in. And then in verse 16, we see Paul make this plea to the word of God being so essential. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
None of the characteristics that Paul has told us to put on will be at all possible if we're not in the Word. I was telling my wife this week, I said, can you even think of a sermon in the last six months where I didn't end it with the implication or application of the point is be in the Word. Like every sermon, every sermon has been be in the Word. No matter what the text says, if you want to obey that text, if you want to live that text, if you want to do that text, you've got to be in the Word. Meaning, you cannot have wisdom unless your wisdom is from the Word. Meaning, your age, your life experience, those are not requirements for wisdom. Only the Spirit of God and the Word of God are required for wisdom. Now, does age and experience and life teach you certain things about life? Yeah, does it give you some insight into who God is? A little bit, but nothing compared to being in the Word. And if you're in the Word, then your age and experience and life have far more meaning because you're interpreting your experiences through the Word because you're in the Word. The point is, your experience and your age have nothing to do with wisdom. The Word of God has everything to do with wisdom, and I'm going to show you that the Bible says that. And what it means is that even a child who is in the Word can teach you. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13, Paul says this. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Listen to this. And we impart this, impart me, we give to you this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? The Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. No human wisdom required. No experience required. No college degree required. No age requirement to be in the Word, to know the Word, to grow in wisdom in the Word, and to teach that wisdom of the Word to those who are spiritual. And no no requirement to encourage each other from the wisdom of the word. No requirement to admonish or correct one another from the wisdom of the word. And no requirement other than the wisdom from the word to lead the church. All that is needed is the word of God and his wisdom that comes through being filled with the spirit. Who gives us the wisdom when we're in the word. Meaning I'm going to trust a 23-year-old who's in the Word far more than a person who has a lifetime of experience but spends limited, if any time, in the Word because I can trust that the one who is in the Word and in prayer is filled with the Spirit and speaking the truth of God. And I can trust them not because of them but because they're in Christ because they're in the Word which is John 1.1, 1, 1, Christ. So I'm not trusting them. I'm trusting Christ in them. And if I have concerns with a person who is in the word and concerns with what they teach and believe or whatever wisdom I hear 
coming out of their mouth, I can't correct that unless I bring the word. Only the word can counter it, not my worldly wisdom, not my experience, not my age, not the things I've been through. They have value. I'm not saying they're worthless. They just don't compare to the word. They don't compare to the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives us in the word. And if we are all in the word and, and the teaching is from the word and the admonishing is from the word and the wisdom is from the word, then the result is praise. Praise to God because we'll be united in mind. We'll be experiencing the same word at the same time together. This is why we do all these ministries that are word-centric. This is why... Christian's going to be teaching that Genesis to Revelation class. Some of you are like, whoa, man, some of these things are too deep. All right, we'll come to the Sunday morning Genesis to Revelation class. It's a 30,000 foot flyover of the Bible. You feel like you don't know anything? Go to that. You just kind of get like an overview of what, what's God's whole story. You're a little more interested in the relationship stuff. You want to be in the Word, but like, I really want to, you know, build relationships and friendships and get to know people. Life groups. Still word-centric, though. No, I really want to dig into the Word. I want, to, I want to learn Scripture. Men's Bible study, women's Bible study. I want all of it wrapped up together in one service. Sunday mornings. Well, how do I lead my family in this? Wednesday nights, family discipleship. There's a reason for the things that we do. And if it's not the Word, it's a waste of your time, and certainly a waste of mine, and it's a waste of your money, it's a waste of your giving. It's a waste of your service to the church. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of life if it's not in the Word, if we're not doing the Word. And we're trying to create ways in which you can receive the Word in various forms, various styles, large overviews, deep study, worship-centric, whatever. We're just trying to create opportunities for you to have the Word. If you're not a part of those things, you lose wisdom. You're missing out on wisdom. You're missing out on the experience. You're missing out on Christ. You're missing out on the Word. You're missing out on opportunities to grow, not just in the Word, but grow in the Word together. That's why we create these things. There is reason. There is meaning. There is purpose behind all of that. And so... We're trying to create an opportunity for everybody to have this opportunity, this experience to grow in the wisdom of God and in Christ through the word. And when we do that, it, the result is that we grow. And as we grow in the Lord, joy fills our heart. And as I've said many times, as joy fills us up, it overflows into praise. It has to come out of us, and we, and we praise God. And praise shows up in so many ways. Praise shows up in, 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 in being at life group, and people just can't stop praying. They just can't stop talking to God. Lord Jesus, I just can't stop praying. I know we've been in life group for an hour praying already, but I need to pray more. I've got to get it out of me. It shows up in singing songs. And that's what Paul says, which we express this praise to God in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and psalms. Like the whole point is that when you are in the word and you're filled with Christ and filled with the spirit, what happens is you get filled with, filled with Christ is filled with joy. If you tell me you're filled with Christ and you also tell me you're miserable, 
One of those things is a lie. One of those isn't true. Either you're filled with Christ and you're not miserable, or you're filled with, or you're miserable because you're not filled with Christ. So, what happens is if we're filled with Christ because we're in the Word and we're growing in the wisdom of God and we're doing it together, especially, it just it, it boils up in you and pours out of you, and you can't help but sing. You can't help but praise God. You can't help but rejoice. Joy explodes out of us into praise. And that's why Paul says we come together to sing these psalms and songs. And we do it together because it's an expression of how, what he just shared in the previous verse, that we are united in mind and in heart because together we are all in the word daily and constantly, which produces a heart of thankfulness in Christ toward God. And then Paul concludes this text with this encouragement. It's a very general, yet very important command. General in the sense that it applies to just everything in life. It says in verse 17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like, just think about those words. And whatever you do, in word or deed, so covering every basis, every activity, every thought, every attitude, every experience, every motion, every mood, every activity, every moment with your family, every second at work, every time you're in the car, every show you watch, all the songs you listen to, the way you praise on Sunday morning, the way you communicate with other people, whether you decide to pray for someone or not, how much time you spend in prayer, your activity in the word, on and on and on, everything, word or deed, thought, mind, heart, everything, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In case it is difficult, in case it is difficult for you to put on these listed characteristics in verses 12 through 17, we just have this big idea by which we can live. And it's similar to the command we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So regardless of whether you're eating breakfast or working out or you're at work, you're mowing the lawn or spending time with your family or you're alone doing whatever, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and to the glory of God the Father. The Bible tells us to do our work as unto the Lord. Meaning we do it for him in his name and for his glory And to do this, it's as simple as asking yourself this question. The question is, is what I'm doing glorifying God? Does what I'm doing exalt Jesus? Am I doing this in Jesus' name? And you could be doing something good, like, you know, helping somebody do something that's hard for them. Like, you know, someone says, oh, can you come over tomorrow and help me move these pallets? Yeah, sure, and you go do it. You could do that, and that person will go, man, you're such a wonderful Christian. Thank you so much. I just love how you're just showing me Christ. And your heart and attitude towards that work could have been completely Christless. Or it could be completely Christ-filled. It's still a good activity. You're still helping your brother or sister, or maybe they're not a brother or sister in Christ, but either way, you're still doing a good activity. And what... What, G, or what Paul is telling us about doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus is that you can do them 
with the wrong mind and the wrong heart, but still do the right activity. You could do it not in the name of Christ, but for yourself, for self-exaltation. You could be doing it just because you're like, this is just what I'm good at, this is what I do. Instead of doing it because everything I do, whether it's to the least of these or to the greatest of these, I do unto Christ. I'm serving Jesus. I'm doing it for him. I don't think it will take a genuine believer that long to decide whether what they're doing or thinking honors God or not, especially if they're in the word, right? But if they're not in the word, then that is when believers get into difficulty as they are unable to discern like what's right from wrong or to have the wisdom that comes from the word, like walking into the scenario and saying, I gotta do this for Christ. This is how I'm gonna love this person by being Christ to them and doing a thing that I either don't like to do but will still do with great joy and zeal because I love to serve my king and my master. And I wanna show them what Christ looks like. That's love that creates peace that comes from wisdom in the word and it binds us together in unity. The overall vision that God has for his church is expressed throughout these verses. What, what I mean is the overall vision of what God wants us to look like as his people is expressed throughout these verses. And that is that as he says in verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we were saved not only for eternal joy, but also for earthly Christ-likeness. That our lives on this earth would look like Jesus' life on this earth. And in order to do that, we must also have what Jesus had, and that is the word of God dwelling richly in us. If we're not people of the word, people who study the word, or people of unceasing and fervent prayer, then we are just people for ourselves, not the people of God. The distinction and the difference between us and the world is the word of God. Because I guarantee you, could walk into a church of 10,000 people or go or just take 10,000 random churchgoers in America and I, I bet you we could pick 9,500 out of that group that don't live their life in any distinctly Christ-like way without sacrifice, suffering, but living only in the pleasures that Christianity brings, expecting to receive the blessings without enduring the sacrifice, and enduring the sanctification. And when challenged on those things and pushed into that sanctifying process by the word of God, and I think, this is a totally made up number, 9,500 out of 10,000 would retreat. I don't know, maybe it's 8,000 out of 10,000. Maybe it's 5,000 out of, maybe it's half. I don't know. But I think we'd be surprised because the reality is a lot of the church just doesn't know the word and spend time in the word. And it's evident when you look at the condition of church in America. And so my agenda is not to 
reshape the church into a particular fashion or say, well, this is my view on what the church should look like. My entire desire and purpose is to do what Paul commands, and that is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in me so that I'm doing my calling according to his word. The unique thing about me in particular is that my calling is to lead and shepherd a larger group of people that have the same Christ-like calling. And so you are going to feel my burden to be dwelling richly in the word. So if I'm dwelling richly in the word and you're not, don't be surprised when we don't agree. Don't be surprised when you believe that the direction of the church is not what God wants for us. Don't be surprised when people don't want to endure sanctification. Don't be surprised when people don't want to grow. Don't be surprised when people bail on the word. Don't be surprised by anything. In fact, scripture tells us, don't be surprised by trials or hardships or difficulties or, or sacrifice or suffering or, sanctifi or the sanctifi sanctification process. Don't be surprised. Because I've called men to lead you and I'm going to make the word of Christ dwell richly in them and it is going to, you're, you're, you're going to feel it when they apply that word to your life and to the church. If we're not a people of the word, if we're not a people who study the word, if we're not a people of, like I said, unceasing and fervent prayer, we're people for ourselves. It's not for God, it's not for Christ. At best, it's for others, but what is that if it's not done in the name of the Lord Jesus? So I want to encourage you with this blessing, and this blessing is yours in Christ. And that blessing is that you have full, full access to God in Christ. Ephesians 3.12, Paul writes, Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Christ, we have this blessing that we have full access to God, to the riches of his glory, to the fullness of his word, to everything that his, to all the wisdom of the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have access to everything and not shy or sheepishly approaching God going, um, can you like help me? I just, I'm sorry, God. Boldness, boldness in Christ, not in yourself, not God I know you want me to have what I want, so give me what I want. That's not boldness or confidence in Christ. That's selfish. This boldness and this access with confidence is the confidence we have in Christ. It's boldness in Christ. It's access in Christ. It's approaching the throne of God and saying, in the name of your son who gave his life for me, I declare God and what I want God is, and whatever that fill in the blank is that you want, it better be his will. Because if it is, he'll give it to you. So how do we know God's will? By letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The 
This is not to get what we want, but to have our mind and our heart changed by God's word so that what we want, he wants, so that we want peace, that we want love, that we want unity, that we want to forgive and be forgiven, that we want restoration, that we want to be thankful. And I can say with absolute confidence that those characteristics shining brightly out of you is God's will for your life. If any of these traits are lacking in your life, I encourage you to pray about them and to seek Jesus and ask him to impart to you that which is lacking in your Christ-likeness. It's that simple. You know you're lacking in Christ-likeness in areas in your life. Just go to him. Just go to him. Lord Jesus, I just don't seek peace with people. I just oppose them because they don't do what I want. And now I'm not at peace with people. Fix, fix it, Lord. Fix my heart. And his answer, I, I guarantee you, his answer is be in my word. My, the answer to your problem is in the word. The wisdom for your life, for your problems, for your hardships, it's in the word. And we need to seek him out so that he can impart to us that which we lack in Christ. So that as we live this Christian life, we are doing so to God's glory by putting on the character of Christ. As we're commanded in verse 12. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, and we just pray that you would be patient with us as we endure, or as you endure our sin that like, f- surrounds us, runs through us. We've got this flesh that we are constantly battling, and it's hard to be in your word. It's hard to be people of your word. It's hard to let the word dwell richly in us. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to love. It's hard to be at peace. It's hard to create unity. It's hard to do these things. And we have this burden to do it perfectly like Christ did. And that's even more of a burden. And it's just hard, God. And that's why you gave us your spirit. Because we can't do it. And the whole reason you gave us this life, and we have this flesh, and the reason it's hard, so that we would depend on you. So create in us absolute, total confidence, trust, and dependence on you as you work in us for your glory. Satisfy us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.